You're listening to the Life-Changing Discipleship Podcast. Here's the deal. If you make disciples by sitting around and talking, you shouldn't be surprised when your disciples sit around and talk and talk and talk. This is the podcast for those weary of just talking and ready to start activating in the mission Jesus gave us to change the world. The Life-Changing Discipleship Podcast, where disciples and disciple makers gather to grow and go together. Here's your host, Dr. Matt Friedemann. Hey, dear friends, so good to have you with us today. Remember, the place for a man, for a woman, completing all their powers is in the fight, the discipleship fight. And right now, today, somewhere in the world, making disciples of the nation. So stay tuned, stay encouraged. We've got a rendezvous with destiny. All right, folks, great to have you with us today. I've been away for a little while. Sorry about that. Been extremely busy. As you might have met, Ebay, Ebay's busy. Ebay's got 24 hours a day, and we're scheduled for 20 of them. And, uh, Thank the Lord if we can get some sleep. But having said that, I've uh, been away for a little while back. Uh, thank you for being patient with me. A <clears throat> uh, number of things I've got going. First off, you, you're never supposed to date these things uh, because if you do, people, you know, think, eh, I, got, I got the wrong week or whatever. But I recognize that people sometimes will start listing, work their way through the list that we have available. Let me say this. I, I have, uh, this is Holy Week. And uh, last night we had a Passover Seder. Now, I don't know if you know what a Passover Seder is. Uh, I think probably most of you do. Some of us are not really familiar with that language. But Seder is a Hebrew word meaning simply order or arrangement. Uh, There's a Haggadah that goes along with the Seder. And the Haggadah means narration or telling. And it's the name given to the text containing the story of the Exodus and the ritual of the Seder. Now, the Seder basically is the Passover meal that we recognize Jesus celebrated. Of course, they celebrated all the way back to the giving of the law. And in the law, it just suggests, I want that day. I want that day right before what you're eventually going to celebrate is Easter. I want that day. And I want you to remember me. I want you to remember me getting you out of Egypt and to the promised land and eventually making Israel a launch pad for the Jesus movement all around the world. So the Passover Seder is basically this incredible, incredible uh, uh, story of how God got us out of Egypt. And it has five cups and really four, but we add one. Uh, There's a cup of sanctification, the cup of instruction, The third cup is typically thought of as the cup after the meal, which is the one Jesus used and we celebrate today as communion. And so that's the cup of redemption. Then there's a cup of praise. Then there's a fifth cup that they celebrate, and that is the cup of Elijah, recognizing that the the Jews looked at Elijah with tremendous hope. There's someday come another one like him. And the Christians think, all right, well, that, that happened in the person of John the baptizer, preparing the way for Jesus. So all this is wonderfully terrific stuff. The Jews use, obviously, a very Jewish version of this. We take the Jewish version and we include these great passages about Jesus because we we think Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Jewish hopes and dreams. So having said that, uh, I just love doing Passover Seders. There's a lot of great uh, stuff on the Internet that you can punch up. Just Think in terms of Christian Seder, Passover Seder. Go get you something, uh, download it, get some instructions on how to do it. There's going to be a plate that you're going to have. It's going to have uh, symbolic foods on it, these five cups of uh, juice that you're going to share. It's wonderful, wonderful stuff. Listen, there's a lot of reading through stuff, 
I'm always thinking, man, people must be bored right now as we're reading through all this. People love it. They love it. We had, I don't know, 70 or 80 people last night at our church celebrating. It was just, it was marvelous. So uh, go figure out the Passover state. I think you'll really, really appreciate that. I want to remind you about our sponsor uh, here. Uh, of course, we've got a number of sponsors. Wesley Biblical Seminary stands behind this program. We very much love them. Telehouse Press. Go look up telehousepress.com and look out all those books. But Ethan Kelly is with Providence Capital Management, specializing in personal and institutional investment management. You need to check him out. I'm a big Ethan Kelly fan. Love that guy. And I think you're going to love him as well. So check him out at Ethan at Providence CM. That's capital management. Ethan at ProvidenceCM.com. And I think you'll be very grateful that you did that. All right. Not only did we do a Seder last night, but I've come back to do a Seder because I've been at my hometown in Kansas. Now, I live in Mississippi and I love Mississippi. Going to die here in Mississippi, but I love my home state, too. And my uh, my hometown is Great Bend, Kansas. And my uh, my dad's family were raised there. They were born there. And so, you know, we were raised there. We were born there. It's kind of special to us. Uh, buried an uncle last week. He was cremated. He, probably, he died two or three months ago. We just got around to burying him in the old hometown, and uh, that was quite a trip. So let me tell you why it was special. I got to go back. Uh, My brother still has a home. He's a lawyer there in town, and uh, we all got to go back to Great Bend, and there are five of us, uh, and I call them the Sibs. I got four Sibs, and so we got five kids, and I got three brothers and a sister, and the spouses didn't come. So we were all together, the Sibs, in my brother's house, and we were good conversations. We were laughing. We were enjoying one another. I so very much appreciated it. And my uncle had a couple sons, and so they were in Great Bend, Kansas. And, of course, my uncle married a Great Bend native, and so that side of the family, we kind of befriended for a long week. We just had a blast. I tell you what's uh, funerals are tough things on one hand, but the kind of glorious things on the other, it, it gets you together in a way that you're not, you know, I mean, in fact, I can't even imagine that the five sibs would be in a house together ever, ever, ever again, this side of heaven. I just can't imagine it happening. Anyway, we we had everybody over at our house, uh, over at uh, my brother's house, and we were talking about Uncle Phil, and we were talking about his life and, um, uh, there was some frustration on the boys' part because um, they had some money at the end, but they didn't spend it, and they didn't spend it on stuff they wanted to do. They wanted to travel, wanted to go to Scotland, and so there's some frustration there. Why didn't they ever get that done? It's because they were thinking, "Hey, we're not sure we're going to have enough money to the end," and they had plenty of money. So what? So you start a theme like that, and pretty soon you're going down, and instead of celebrating their life uh, and, and Uncle Phil's life, you start complaining about it. And my brother, uh, Dick, stopped it and he said, listen, he led a full life. And Dick talked about that a little bit, but I went to bed thinking about leading a full life. And what does that mean to lead a full life? And uh, I just thought, you know, if you look at Uncle Phil's life, he kind of did it. He got polio. He fought back polio in his life as a kid. Had great taste in women. <laughs> he married a saint. That's why Isaiah had great taste in women. Raised two great guys, uh, two wonderful sons, and we love and we cherish. He chose a vocation. He went into the ministry in which he helped many, many people. And I got to tell you, that denomination he was with, I don't have a lot of respect for, 
nonetheless, I think that uh, there's something there that's special about him because he chose to go into a vocation, which was the ministry. He was a pastor and he tried to help people. He did. He helped a lot of people. He was kind of frustrated with his life in the pastorate, but he helped a lot of people. By the way, he loved the Kansas Jayhawks. We happen to be Kansas Jayhawk people. And he loved, I, I can't imagine a bigger fan in the world. And, and, and certainly not a mo, more vociferous, loud one than my Uncle Phil. And he didn't just love the ball teams either. He was very proud of uh, the academics, proud of the community community there. And by the way, he got to live his last several years. I don't know how long, maybe 20. He got to live his last several years in his version of paradise, which is Lawrence, Kansas. And maybe one of the coolest things about him, he probably had, he, he was in the pasture. Uh, he retired and then retired to Lawrence, Kansas. Still needed work to pay off of a, a very nice house that he bought. And so he went to work and he worked for a funeral home. A, a friend of mine has a funeral home. So I, I got uh, my friend and Uncle Phil together and, and they started this relationship. And Uncle Phil basically worked at that funeral home any way he could help them, basically. But his primary influence there was in grief counseling. And oh, my goodness, my friend said over and over and over again, what a marvelous, incredible job that Uncle Phil did in grief counseling. I, I say all that to say, y'all, what is fullness to you? I think all those things at the end of the day were fullness to my Uncle Phil. By the way, I walked up, <laughs> kind of a funny story. Uh, so some of the, one of his friends walked up and said, so who are you? I said, well, my name is Matt Friedman. I'm Uncle Phil's nephew. And she might have been able to figure out when I, I sit, called him uncle. I said, I'm Phil Friedemann's uh, nephew. She goes, you know, <laughs> first thing she said, you know, he wrote Putin. I said, ma'am, he says, he wrote Putin. I said, well, he wrote a lot of people. He wrote Bill Self, the basketball coach at Kansas Jail, about every month. He wrote the football coach. He wrote the city council people. He was writing letters all the time. And the reason he was writing letters all the time, including to Putin, is he thought if they would just listen to him, problems would get solved. <laughs> and, and in the case of Putin, major problems in the world would get solved. And we kind of laugh at that thinking, uh, you know, I, I can imagine Bill Self getting these letters, basketball coach at Kansas, Bill Self getting these letters and, and just, uh, if they ever got to him, probably didn't. But, you know, just rolling his eyes, thinking, here's another guy who thinks he knows everything about how to coach my basketball team. But nonetheless, he had a certain audacity to him that said, I will be heard by Putin, by Bill Self, by the football coach, Lance Leipold, I will be heard. And when I'm heard, life will get better. That's audacious. That's bold. Now, the truth is, Putin will never read a letter of mine because I didn't write one. So you can say everything you want about Uncle Phil. At least he wrote the letters. Had a fun time talking about him. Got down to the end. I thought, how do, how do I wrap this thing up? And I was looking online. You think a guy that uh, had been in uh, the ministry as long as he had would uh, have some resources. So usually I end with this, but I decided to tack something else onto it. Usually I say this. At the at most funerals that I do, I say, listen, family, friends, if Uncle Phil could come back right now and he could talk to us right now, which means he's been in heaven for a little while. He's seen Jesus. He stood. And by the way, I never say they've been in heaven or hell. I, I don't know about the judgment seat of Christ, but I do think that you immediately go to that judgment seat. You're there. You're in front of Jesus. You've seen him face to face. If he could come back now, 
having seen Jesus face to face, he would say something like this, family, friends, he's real. Father, son, spirit, God is real and he means business. Don't, 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 don't miss your opportunity today. Now, right now to take Jesus seriously. And then I quote John 3, 16, God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. And that word belief is important. You've got to believe, not just mental assent. Mental assent is good. You've got to go ahead and accept the idea, but it's got to be more than mental assent. Belief is bet your life on God. Now, I said this, Mississippi's a gambling state, and unfortunately, Kansas has become one too. We're gambling states, and gamblers ought to know what it means to believe. We bet our life, and in this case, on God. And that's what Uncle Phil would tell us to do right now. He's real. He means business. Don't miss your opportunity. Bet your life on him today. The cross is real. The blood is real. The atoning sacrifice is real. Heaven is real. Hell is real. Everything's real, y'all. Know it for sure. It's real. Take the offer of everlasting life today, right now. So I, I usually say that at a funeral and certainly said it at his. Then I, 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 I went to search the internet. Listen, if you type in Matt Friedman, you're going to find all kinds of stuff because I've written all kinds of stuff across the last uh, couple decades that have ended up on the Internet. And, and some of it's, uh, I'm old enough where some of it's gone away, but a lot of it's still there. And I, I searched the Internet wondering if Uncle Phil had any messages, any writing posted somewhere. Most of his sermonizing was long ago before the contemporary version of the Internet really took off. But I found one thing. It was on his church's Facebook page. It was something called a Micah moment. And uh, he talked about Herbert brokering. So this is Uncle Phil's devotional on Facebook. He said, Herbert brokering, a, a great reporter, once offered this story. On Thursdays, his church always had a special service. They'd have a meal and then offer, or they would receive an offering. But the meal and offering would be taken with a special guest and actually for a special guest. Every Thursday night, it was their custom to invite some needy person in from the street. So they went out and got a guy between, I don't know, 30 and 50 years old. Hard to tell for sure. Some aging is really tough on people who live on the streets. But his total property was the portable cot, which he placed on whatever porch or alleyway possible for any night of the week. So at any rate, the group had their meal and they took up the offering. The guest, the homeless guy, was invited to participate, of course. Hey, you got something to give? Give. Eating was easy, delicious enough, but... He had virtually nothing to place in the offering. So he was embarrassed. He was bankrupt. So after the plate made it around, the, 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 the lady, a lady, took the offering plate and set it before the man. Take it. She says, take this money. We've just taken up an offering for you. It's all yours. All of it. Go get something to eat. Go get something to drink. So the homeless guy just laughed. He thought it was some kind of silly church game or symbolism. But no, 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 no. He said, this is not just an empty ritual. It's real. The offering was his. He was gifted with some cold, hard cash. Everyone was smiling. We give it to you, they said. And so he says, well, then I'll take it. And he went out into the night. He was half chuckling, half sobbing. Brokering was the reporter telling me to say, I couldn't tell which. So those remaining began clearing the table. Unexpectedly, they found something right underneath the invited guest, the homeless guy's empty plate. It was two pennies, two coins. The homeless man's offering. 
So Uncle Phil then prayed, dear Lord, what favor shown that man. But in reality, most of us have been favored in so many ways again and again. We've all known your favor. And in return, we all give something. But few of us leave all that we have. By your grace, help us to give more of our time, our effort, our money, ourselves, of ourselves. Amen. So that was my little witness to Uncle Phil's life. And uh, I appreciate him. I considered him not only my uncle, he was a friend. And uh, from time to time, enjoyed talking with him on the phone. So there's that. I want to uh, want to talk really quick here about uh, a couple things I found since this Holy Week. <clears throat> really enjoyed the other day. You know, we got these five Q groups. We want everybody here to get in a five Q five Q discipleship group. If you want to know more about it, you can check it out. We got the book, the five Q method of discipleship. Five questions that will absolutely change your life. You can get that at amazon.com. comes out with Telios Press. We think you'll love the book, but in the book, you'll find some questions. And on the back of the card, you'll find the means of grace by which you can order your life. You do these things, you're going to know abundance. I just guarantee you will. Well, I love these five questions, and I work through them with several groups a week. And we were in Matthew 27, 27 and following the other day. And man, just things open up when I open myself up through these five questions to other guys that are just looking at the Bible, saying, what's, what's the Holy Spirit highlighting for me out of this text? And the text is Matthew 27, 27 and following. And what I saw most of all there, like I'd never seen it before, is the profound mockery of Jesus. Now, this is kind of hard to get your mind around, really. God has emptied himself, became nothing, says Philippians, and became a man. All the prerogatives they have, and he left behind. And he came, God came to live in our midst to save us. And what did we do? On that horrific day we call Good Friday, we mocked him and mocked him and mocked him and spat on him and beat him on the head and mocked him again. I'm looking through all this, and it's all such profound stuff to me. One of my friends, Roberto Stevenson, uh, probably has the largest church in Mexico City. Uh, we get on a phone call together and do these five questions together, and um, Roberto says, a pretty profound Christology arises from the mocking of Jesus in this passage. For instance, they mocked him saying, verse 29, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And then verse 37, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Verse 40, save yourself. You're the son of God. Verse 42, he cannot save himself. He's the King of Israel. Verse 43, He's trusted in God. Let God rescue him. If he takes pleasure in him, for he said, I am the son of God. And so Roberto says, man, look at these verses. You talk about profound teaching about Jesus first. Hail, hail, king of the Jews. Hail is just a word meaning praise and approval. May our lives be ever more dominated by the praise of Jesus. They were making fun of him. We can walk away saying, hey, you make fun. I'm going to take the truth, and I want to hail him. I want to praise him. This says this king of the Jews. I, I, you know, I'm not a chess player. I'm a terrible chess player. I basically know how the pieces move on the board, and that's all. No strategy. Don't have any idea. 
The only thing I know is, oh, my turn. I think I'll move this piece there. <laughs> That's how you get beat fast in chess. That's all I know. What I do know is this. The, the whole point of the game is to get the king. And if you get the king, it's called checkmate. So the king is a chess piece. And checkmate is what you don't want to hear if you're trying to win the game. So the game is won when there's a checkmate. And the Jews and the Romans here thought they had Jesus at checkmate. All contraire. God is not mocked. I love that passage out of Galatians 6, 7. I tell you, in light of this passage, it's exceedingly sobering. Uh, and that was brought up at the 5Q meeting as well, our discipleship meeting. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, says Galatians 6. God is not mocked. Whatever a person sows, this will he also reap. So you say, checkmate, you have no idea. <laughs> and then save yourself. That, y'all, that's simply a play on Jesus' name. Jesus' name is Yeshua, which means to deliver, to rescue. It means salvation. So Yeshua means salvation. And what are they doing? They're turning his name on Jesus. But you know something? Jesus wants to save us to the uttermost, and he will, if we'll let him. They say king of Israel. Now, king of what? You know, Israel at that point is an occupied nation. But Jesus always does his best work in seemingly impossible situations. And he's in one right here in this passage. He's in an impossible situation, and he's going to do the best work of all. He is going to die for our sins, for our sin-sick lives, and they're gonna, he's going to be raised from the dead on Sunday. And finally, he said, I am the son of God. And did he was and is. Can you imagine the Christology, the most beautiful articulations come forth in this impossible situation? He's staring death in the, death in the face. They are mocking him. And yet, incredible, incredible. I just, man, I just, I just I'm, I'm so flabbergasted by it all. Now, having said that, that, uh, that's something I was learning about this week in my 5Q group. And again, I highly recommend you go to Amazon.com and uh, get the 5Q method of discipleship uh, written by yours truly. And I think you will love the book. And I think you will grow as you get in a group and begin sharing these questions back and forth. Now, uh, there was a secular website that just got a hold of me yesterday, and I just prepared it today. A column for them, and I just want to talk to you a little bit about the column as we uh, we wrap this up today. The death of Jesus, I think we would all admit, is one of the most consequential moments in human history. There's absolutely no question about that. Like all consequential moments, there's always a lot of perspectives surrounding the significance, and in this instance, the blood, the impact of the sacrifice for our lives, the necessity of such a cruel demise, and of course. A lot of theological interest in atonement theories. But there's something that's been haunting me for a couple of years now. Something really little talked about, but divinely effective for those who find themselves captivated by this Jesus hanging on the cross. And I call it coercion theory. Uh, coercion theory. A lot of theories about atonement. This is not a theory about atonement. This is just a theory from the cross. Coercion theory. Now, let me work to get there. I think I've told you about Lee Eklov, who talked about this board game that his family used to play in the mid-50s. Uh, I've told you this. I, mean, I, I think I had Parker Brothers put out this game. It was called Going to Jerusalem. 
Each player was represented by a plastic disciple with a robe, sandals, and a staff. You can almost see it, can't you? With a roll of the dice, you looked up answers in the Little New Testament. You started, of course, in Bethlehem and proceeded through the places like Nazareth and Capernaum and Bethsaida and the Stormy Seas, Bethany and the Mount of Olives. Listen, if you were winning, you could make it all the way to the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. But the journey stopped right there with the triumphal entry. In this game, the game going to Jerusalem, there's no suffering. There's no enemies plotting your death. No Roman gibbet, no, no death, no, no, no hurt, no harm. Just uh, you make your way through all the fun stories and you skip right over, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus. So if you play the game, it's, it's a fun night, just like most of the rest of our Christianity. A good time with beverages, chips and dip. Great conversation mixed with lots of laughter, but no blood. Goodness, no, no blood. There's no persuasion principle in play here. <laughs> now, let me tell you what I mean by that. Methodist missionary E. Stanley Jones lived in India at the time of Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, he, amongst many other things, showed the power that suffering and self-denial could exercise upon a people. And really, it's just kind of as a quick aside, what Jones wrote in his portrayal of Gandhi after his assassination proved motivating in a big-time way to a guy named Martin Luther King Jr. and his efforts in nonviolent resistance. So it's an important book. So in this book, Jones is talking about Gandhi who used the power of suffering. So, for instance, when things weren't going the way Gandhi thought they should, he would frequently go on a hunger strike until his admirers acquiesced to his will. Some of these fasts would last a couple of days, but some would ask for weeks. And when it looked like Gandhi's about ready to die by starvation, now, sure, it was you know starvation by choice. Looks like he's going to die because of the stupid things we're doing here. That was enough to bring sobriety those to those drunk with having their own selfish way. So Jones, considering the fast of Gandhi, tells the story of a young Indian lady who went to the West to get an education, but she got something else, and that was an addiction to alcohol. So everything was done to try to win her back and reform her, but nothing worked. And so her father began a fast, a fast till death. Either change or I'm going to die of lack of food. I'm going to die of starvation. She was horrified at the prospect of someone dying for her, so she repented. And her testimony was someone had to suffer to redeem me. Well, it was argued at the time, and you can imagine it was argued at the time, that the father's method sounded terribly coercive. The response from the father? <laughs> well, that's the same kind of coercion that Christ applies to you from the cross. It's true. That's coercion theory right there. To know that God became flesh and felt it necessary to suffer and die for my Sin, sick, foolish soul certainly ought to have some kind of coercive effect. Now, y'all remember John Newton wrote Amazing Grace. His tombstone best told his story in brief, and this is what it said. John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. 
And one of his hymns talked about that coercive power of the cross. Now, I'm not good at poetry here, and I'm very bad at listening to him. I'm going to ask you, if you're bad at listening to poetry, hang on. There's only about eight lines here. Listen to this. John Newton. In evil long I took delight, unawed by shame or fear, till a new object struck my sight and stopped my wild career. I saw one hanging on a tree in agonies and blood, who fixed his languid eyes on me as near his cross I stood. Y'all, those languid eyes are never more apparent than during Holy Week, the days where Jesus seemingly looked down on us again from the cross, and he coerces us to turn from our wickedness and by grace embrace his goodness, embrace his holiness, embrace his righteousness. So listen, Sunday comes, and I'm excited about Sunday. I mean, it's Easter Sunday. It's like the Super Bowl for evangelicalism and all other Christians. It's just, it's a great day. And we shout victory and we shout resurrection on Sunday. But always, always remember those languid eyes that are the premier tools of the faith to alleviate the brokenness of the world, our brokenness, our sin sickness. The cross and the empty tomb, they belong together. The former is coercive. The latter is exceedingly liberating. And praise God from whom all blessings flow for that liberation, for that resurrection. All right. It's a wrap. It's an honor to have you listening to the Life-Changing Discipleship with Matt Friedman podcast today. Hey, check out our Facebook page, Life-Changing Discipleship, and check out our books at Amazon.com. Type in Matt Friedman into that search engine, see what's offered. And always, always tell others about our podcast. And remember, my wife thanks you, my daughter thanks you, my sons and their wives thank you, and I can assure you, I thank you for listening to Life-Changing Discipleship today. I want you to love God, live clean, Keep the faith, make disciples, and God bless you, dear friends. We'll see you back here real soon.